Hi, this is Todd Callis, television broadcaster for the Houston Astros, and you're listening to Strohs Across the Globe. Hi everyone and welcome to the first episode of Strohs Across the Globe, a new podcast presenting an international view on the Houston Astros, brought to you in association with Apollo Media, all Houston, all original. I'm your host, George Martin, who you may know on Twitter as at AstrosFansUK. From that opening introduction to the show, you will of course be in no doubt over who the first special guest on the podcast is, the one and only Mr. Todd Callis, lead television commentator for the Houston Astros. But before we listen to a great and wide-ranging chat with the voice of Astros ball games, I'd like to take a moment to introduce you properly to the podcast and outline what it's all about. In my eyes, this is a chance to present a global fan-based view of the Astros and is designed to connect our fans across the world, as is my ever-ongoing mission, starting here in the UK and spreading far and wide. In the lead-up to this show, I was looking back through Twitter connections made, and we have fans in France, Brazil, Germany, New Zealand, Singapore, Hawaii, Hungary, Japan, Australia, Spain, Canada, South Africa, Norway, the Philippines, Thailand, Turkey, China, and Taiwan. This is a club which has the potential to expand globally and I will do everything in my power to help achieve that. It's not about me though, I'm a fan just like any other, it's really about you as a community of Astros fans. It goes without saying that we've gone through one of the worst off-seasons imaginable for any fan base. However, as the saying sort of goes, what doesn't kill us makes us stronger and I really do believe that. We are a thriving, growing, vibrant and fun international fan base and my hope is that Strohs across the globe will help to cultivate and unite us around the world. For me personally, it's a new venture, having appeared on numerous podcasts and co-hosted, but never as the main host, so hopefully this will be the start of something special. I don't know the frequency yet, which I'll be putting episodes out, as I want to make sure that every instalment packs a punch with things to say and great special guests, so uh, never treading water. Additionally, there will be prize giveaways of Astro's merch and some of the great merch designs from uh, Apollo Media as well, which you won't want to miss out on, so watch this space. With all that said, it's time now to settle back as we take a listen to my chat with Todd Callis, which I hope and think you'll very much enjoy. Without further ado, it gives me great pleasure to welcome the first ever guest onto Strohs Across the Globe, none other than the man himself, the Houston Astros lead television broadcast commentator for AT&T Sports Southwest, Mr. Todd Callis. First and foremost, how are you? Doing well, George. I'm missing baseball a lot in 2020, but uh, hanging in there and hope for, hoping for some good news soon. Oh, who isn't? I mean, it's it's been an extraordinary situation, I think, for everyone, uh, and that's obviously goes way beyond baseball, but particularly within the sport, uh, it's it's such an alien situation for all the fans, everyone working within the game, and of course the teams themselves. I mean, what have you been doing to keep yourself busy in the meantime? We're doing a few things online. Um, we do a a happy hour on Monday nights with the mm. five announcers, myself, Julia Blummer, and the two radio guys, Robert and Sparky. Um, we do an occasional podcast for uh, Astros Radio. Uh, we just talked with Billy Wagner today. He was our guest. We just did one with Enos Cabell earlier in the week. So do about one or two of those a week. And then uh, we're doing some shows that AT&T is going to start airing with myself, Julia Blummer, and Kevin Eschenfelder. Uh, so just doing a, a few things here and there. We Blummer and I also are doing a backyard baseball segment cool. which basically involves fans sending in videos of their kids playing baseball in their backyard and then we're voice voiceovering the highlights so that's been pretty fun too that sounds awesome my son's four so i don't know if he, he might not 
quite be in the age group yet. I don't know what the youngest you're going to have for that is. Um, we've had little kids in diapers all the way through oh, wow. high school. So, yeah, we're good. Oh, wow. So I've got my, got my uh, game cut out for me there. Where would people be able to catch that if, if they want to get involved, especially for, for fans looking from overseas? Is that something that will be on the, the Astros main Twitter feed? or it, It'd be either on the Astros main Twitter feed or on Astros.com or both, I would think. Yeah, they've been posting a lot of stuff on Twitter. So I would look for that on their, on their Twitter feed for sure. Awesome. I'll definitely be making sure people keep a keen eye out for that because it sounds like a lot of fun. Speaking of positive news, Julian Morales, that's a, a much needed shot in the arm for, for everyone in the times that we're in. I mean, you must be delighted. I uh, couldn't be happier. Uh, that was such great news. And she'd given us a little bit of a heads up prior to the official announcement to the public on Mother's Day. But that seemed like the perfect time for her to let the rest of the people know. Uh, I, unfortunately, I haven't seen Julia since early March, since we haven't, uh, we never got back to spring training for our second round of games. And then mm. uh, everybody's been self-quarantined since then. So, yeah, I couldn't be happier. She and Matt are going to be incredible parents. Um, I know uh, she's going to be in, in just the best mom ever. I, and I know that, uh, you know, as the season goes along, we'll, we'll see how, how her pregnancy uh, go. Oh, yeah. We'll be following along with all the viewers at home, hopefully sooner than later. But yes, uh, Julia is one of the best people in the world that I've ever worked with and uh, couldn't be happier for her. Yeah, she uh, is a real beacon of energy, if you like, on the broadcasts and so utterly professional as well. I, I have a great deal of admiration for what she does. I share all Astros fans' sentiments in saying that's fantastic news and we wish her all the best with the pregnancy as it develops. Moving on to the first main subject today, what are your thoughts on the proposals that are being put out there by MLB at the moment? I know nothing's confirmed, but I mean, first and foremost, do you think that it's actually right to go ahead with the season in the current state? Is it With the pandemic being obviously very much still an active issue, it, do you feel it's, it personally feel it's the right way to go to try and get a season done? If like, you know, 82 games, a uh, half season? Yeah, I think what they have right now is they have a lot of ideas in place and they're just trying to figure out what the best solution is. But if there is no plan in place uh, that you can act upon, uh, then you're really not going to have much of a chance for a season. So um, I'm fine with right now uh, having some tentative plans, whether uh, mm. we have exact dates or not. Uh, but if they have tentative plans in place for a two or three week ramp up spring training and then a season starting, then if you have to alter course from there, and say, hey, things aren't getting any better, we may need to revisit this, then you could talk about the possibility of, of canceling the season, which I hope never comes to fruition. But uh, for the possibility of having a year or a half season or 80 or 82 games, whatever it may be, uh, then you have to at least start putting the wheels in motion now. So I think that's where uh, baseball is with the owners and their proposal to the MLB Players Association. And Hopefully they can come up with a solution that appeases both sides because I know it's going to be a, yeah. a very strange year no matter what. And, and baseball fans are just hoping even if they can't go to the games that maybe they can watch them in empty stadiums on TV. Mm. I'm glad you brought that up because the players who haven't been in favour of what proposals or what discussions have been put out there so far, particularly Trevor Bauer and Blake Snell, uh, they've been very very um, outspoken in terms of the criticism of it. I know uh, Nolan Arenado's um, comments were sort of taking that a little bit back in to try and appease the situation. But could a season under these conditions, could a season like this have the same legitimacy that uh, a normal baseball season will have? Or, or will it be something that doesn't quite hold the same value? What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a good question. I think there's, 
you know, assuming they play an 80 or 82 game schedule mm -hmm. and they have a playoffs, there's going to be a champion. So there will always be a 2020 champion if a season's played. But yeah, it's not going to be quite the same uh, when you talk about division winners or, or even teams that qualify for the playoffs. I do think that there may be some experimentation with rules, whether it's the universal DH or whether they are going to the possibility of um, expanding playoff um, mm. the the playoff picture and, and allowing more wild card teams in. I've heard you know as many as seven teams in each league could get in. So all those things are on the table, and I think this is the year if you're going to try and uh, do some things that possibly it's a good experimental year because it is going to be very different. The records aren't going to be you know the league leader in home runs might yeah, have. 25 this year instead of you know with the normal number everything's going to be skewed off so yes um i don't know there will be a 2020 champion and based on their run through the postseason you know you could you could declare in your own head what the legitimacy of that is but in terms of the overall uh arch the overarching season in the regular season yeah it's not going to hold the same weight to be a division champion in 2020 mm. as opposed to past years Adding in the proposed realignment as well with the potentially mouth-watching prospect of the Astros and the Dodgers being in the same division and, and the changes to the draft going dropping from 40 rounds down all the way to, to five rounds. I mean, it's odd, isn't it? You're right. It's a bit of a free hit, I guess, considering the circumstances, but it's it's no less alien for us as fans and observers to, to, to try and be able to make sense of that. And I guess for you personally as well, if ballparks are not allowed to have the same kind of conditions as normal that you would be potentially commentating remotely. Is that, is that correct to say? Yeah, we're still waiting to hear what the final word is on that. I would guess uh, on road games, there's a, a very strong likelihood we would be broadcasting from a remote location locally in Houston. And, mm -hmm. you know, hopefully we can broadcast games from Minute Maid Park when they play at home, but uh, that's still to be determined as well. It's just, uh, it's a lot more difficult to call a game off of a monitor, as you might imagine, as opposed to live. But uh, we'll do whatever, we'll do whatever we can to facilitate that. But right now, my best guess is that we will not travel with the team and have to broadcast remotely on the away games. And hopefully, we can be uh, in our home booth at Minute Maid Park when they play in Houston. Absolutely, um, from afar, playing in the West would mean first pitch times are likely around. 3 a.m. over here, which uh, I'm not quite, not so keen on. It's difficult enough as it is with um, normal normal first pitch times for your typical evening games being at around midnight or 1 a.m. It would slightly up the ante in terms of following the games, but you know if that's the situation, then I, I can guarantee that there'll be a lot of fans from over here that will be uh, sticking with the team as live and doing the best they can to to follow it. The only thing I would I guess, consider though yeah. with the with the West Coast times, and I'm not sure if this is going to happen, but um, Start times in the past were based on the maximizing television television audiences, but also giving people enough time to get back from work and get out to a stadium. So that part of the equation is kind of eliminated. You don't have to worry about people getting home from work and then having to get their uh, family out to the ballpark because there's not going to be fans probably at least in the, the beginning stages. So I, I wouldn't be shocked if the Astros are playing all those games in California against NL West or AL West teams, if they come up with some sort of um, – you know, consideration for the Astros start times and maybe it'll move it up, up an hour. So now it starts at six o'clock Pacific and, 
and eight o'clock central. It only helps you guys out a little bit. It's still wee hours of the morning, it, but it, every little helps. Honestly, it really, it really would. But um, yeah, we would take any baseball that we can get as long as it's safe. Um, you know, I think we lap up any baseball that we can get. I know that the Korean league, which has started, has, has had a lot of attention over here from baseball fans, which is great to see. So uh, whatever and whenever baseball comes back, and it's safe, safe to say that we'll definitely be on board as well. Um, I guess. That, one of the other major impacts from the situation is on the minor league. It's still up in the air as it stands. No, that's very, very much up in the air right now. We don't know what's going to happen with the minor league season. You can't, you've got to somehow accommodate those players that aren't on the 40-man roster, or aren't on the protected list that could help out the major league mm. team this year. You can't just let them go a whole no, year. No, true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there has to be something, whether it's in the fall, in the spring training sites, or uh, you know, some sort of one-month or two-month league, uh, even if it's scrimmages within your own minor league teams, just something to keep these guys active and, and not completely lose a year. But I don't know what's going to happen with the minor league season for sure, and, I, I you know, that that's still to be determined. But the fact that they normally end uh, at the end of August and supposed at the end of September, the time is timing is definitely not on their side. Mm, I mean, and particularly when you add that to the talk of the contraction as well with, um, was it 41, 42 teams that are potentially at risk of being, um, well, to, to put it bluntly, eliminated from, from existing. It's, I, I imagine it's a very, very tough time to be a minor league player in um, baseball as it stands. And I truly sympathize with them. So yeah, I, I completely agree that it's a priority that one way or another, they work out a way to keep these players involved, keep them playing the game in a safe environment. Because uh, yeah, I mean, imagine there's an injury crisis at a major league team. They're going to need to, to fall back on their minor league guys they can call up. So it's, I, I don't envy major league baseball and minor league baseball for trying to work out the solution to that situation that's there. It's it's a really unenviable position. Moving on from the season that could potentially be taking place in an abbreviated form, I wanted to have take a quick look back at the Astros in 2019. I don't know about you, Todd, but for me, I'm still actually in shock that one of the greatest teams that I've ever seen just couldn't get it done. Uh, in, the, in the World Series and I think it's a postseason or it's a World Series that we'll always look back on as Astros fans with an enormous amount of regret and what ifs what was it like watching that from your view I mean it, it, I just I couldn't get my head around it I honestly couldn't get, get my head around why at home having dominated gone 60 and 21 at home in the season to, to not be able to get it done in any of the four World Series games at home it, it was such a, a shock yeah, there's not much of that 2019 World Series that made a whole lot of sense. Um, it, it was. I got to watch every game live. I, my wife and I traveled to the nation's capital, and we watched all those games at Nationals Park, which was mm. a great time. We were with a bunch of Astros fans up in the upper deck and uh, watched games three, four, and five. And as shocked as I was that they went down two to nothing, I certainly didn't think the World Series was over. And then when they came back up three to two uh, – I mean, I was 100% convinced that they were not going to uh, lose that World Series. There's no way I there's no way I could see a scenario that that team would lose two games, two more games at home, um, especially having the lead in the seventh in the final game. And there was a couple of ominous signs early in that game when the Astros hit in some hard outs and could have added to yeah. that, and mm -hmm. that started to get your your head scratching a little bit. And then lead was never comfortable, but Garrett Cole was always kind of like looming in the wings there. So it was just a shock when they didn't win that final game. I think that's one that's going to live with me and live with that 2019 team forever because it's it's the best team I've ever been around. And I, I don't know if I'll ever see 
a more complete team and a more talented team than that one. And it's a shame that they couldn't uh, get that final win. Yeah, I mean, they had no weaknesses. I mean, I, I look at that Astros team and I just think if I was devising the perfect Astros team from, you know, one through nine starters, the starting rotation, the bullpen, the back end of the bullpen as well, there was absolutely nothing I'd change about that team. I think the one thing which stuck out to me about the 2019 Astros versus the 2017 edition was that the 2019 team, for whatever reason, wasn't able to overturn late deficits. I don't think they, I don't think, well, I might be wrong here, but I don't think they overturned a single deficit after the seventh inning all season, which was the opposite of 2017, where we had obviously that miracle in Minnesota and all these different games where we were, well, obviously in the World Series itself in 2017, game, game two, and, and examples of that sort of never-say-die attitude. Did you put your finger on any reason why that might not have been the case with the 2019 team? Was it because it was too easy for them in the majority of their wins? They weren't pushed, so when they were in that position, they didn't really know how to respond to it? Uh, that could be it. I, I do think that it's a little more the norm when you're not able to come back against the game's elite closers. I think that that run they had uh, against some elite closers in 2017 was mm. kind of the outlier. That doesn't happen very often to beat a Chapman uh, at home against the Yankees and to go ahead and, and do what they did against the Dodgers bullpen that was flawless in the uh, first two rounds of the National League uh, ALDS and NLCS. Uh, that that doesn't happen a whole lot. So, yes, the Marwin Gonzalez home run in game two was the first little blemish against the Dodgers bullpen. And then there would be plenty more as that series went along. But that um, it, it, they seemed invincible prior to that. And that maybe at least got them thinking that they aren't, weren't quite as invincible. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know about the 2019 and their inability to, to rally late. I just think that uh, that happens a lot where the, the game's best closers beat uh, the game's best offenses. But there was... It was a team that uh, had everything, like you said, offense, pitching, and their defense was phenomenal, and that often gets overlooked because their pitching and their and their offense was so good. Yeah, I, I feel especially for um, Zach Greinke because that performance in Game 7 under the most intense pressure was phenomenal. It was uh, pretty stirring stuff, and for him to not come away with what would have been a career-defining victory to secure a championship as a fan, it's painful, uh, even now. But yeah, I guess we have to, we, you know, we have to move on. And it's it's just a shame that a team that, that was that great wasn't able to coronate the season in a way which th they deserved, really. We have to move on to, to 2020. And speaking of this year, naturally, the goalposts, as they say, have moved very much in terms of what was to be expected. Because after the scandal, we were all waiting for this kind of year of sort of baptisms of fire on, on the road trips that the Astros were going to be facing this year. Now, with the potential for empty ballparks, that's absolutely not the case. And I think we're not looking at the same scenario at all. I mean, how do you feel? Let's just say that we have a, an 81-game season or 82-game season, whatever it ends up with and the Astros do go ahead uh, as they are. How do you see the team doing? I mean, I, I was convinced for the longest that it was going to make this team, that they would probably struggle the first couple of weeks, but then settle into it and actually relish the challenge of trying to silence all these vociferous crowds that they're facing. But with that not being the case now, I, I don't know what I think. How about you? Yeah, they're just from a strictly talent standpoint, they're still very good. Their offense will be as good or, or better than they were last year because you've got Jordan for a full year and hopefully Altuve and Correa stay healthy for a full year and uh, everybody else everybody else returning from last year with the exception of Torino. So um, offensively, they should be as good or better as, as the 2019 team. But yes, overall, um, not having to hear from the fans on the road trips, I, I don't think that 
you know, that, that might be a slight benefit to the Astros. But I, I thought that they were talented enough, uh, no matter what happened this year, and facing adversity on the road and hearing from the opposing crowds more than they ever have, that they were still good enough to win the AL West. And I still believe, uh, even if it's a shortened season, that they're the favorite to win the AL West. What they do uh, when they get to the postseason, if they get there, is it will will determine how good they are. I certainly... Uh, Lance McCullers coming back is going to boost a rotation that's needing a boost without uh, Garrett Cole here. And certainly Wade Miley. I mean, Wade had his struggles down the stretch, but for four or five months, he was an every five day guy who gave you a great chance to win. Um, but yeah, it's going to be a, it's going to be different replacing a couple of those guys. But I think this is still the best team in the AL West. And it would not shock me uh, to see this Astros team get back to the World Series for the third time in four years. We can only hope. I mean, looking at 2020 and beyond, I mean, one of the moods that has been advanced by this COVID-19 pandemic, dismantling the baseball season as it stands, is, of course, George Springer's last year before free agency. And naturally, I think I speak for a lot of Astros fans when I say that we're worried that, you know, we may have seen the last of him if, uh, if as an Astro, if, if the season doesn't get played. I hope that isn't the case. I, I don't know what your thoughts are. On, on whether he'll stay. I do worry that we're entering the last, potentially the last season of George Springer as an Astro and it would absolutely be crushing if he doesn't stay and doesn't get the chance to do more damage as he has in the last few years because last year, until he got injured, he was on an MVP caliber season. He was absolutely in destructive form. Do you see him staying beyond the season? I can only hope. I know, um, you know, that's going to be one of the big issues that Jim Crane has to deal with in the offseason. Mm. Um, but yes, George is the heart and soul of this team. He is, uh, he's kind of the energy. He's the guy that gets things going, not just at the top of the lineup, but he also plays the music in the clubhouse. He's everybody. And he's always in a great mood. Um, so yes, I I hope that George, obviously we've lost some great guys over the last few years, going back to Dallas Keuchel and Marwin Gonzalez and Charlie Morton and now Garrett Cole. Uh, but George will be a big blow. And I, no matter what happens with George, uh, the one thing that's really disappointing, as you mentioned, with 2020 being curtailed to a shortened season, is that you know that no matter what happens, it's not going to be the exact same team next year. There's no way you're going to sign Yuli Gurriel, yep. George Springer, Josh Reddick, Michael Brantley. All those guys are due for free agency, and you're just not going to have them all come back next year. That's just the, the reality of the financials involved. Mm-hmm. So um, this team, as it stands right now, as good as they were last year and as good as they can be offensively this year, uh, it's a shame that we're not getting to see them over a full season because I think they could put up some pretty big numbers offensively, and I'm not sure. Obviously, a Kyle Tucker will still be around next year, and he should get his opportunity uh, this year and next, but I'm not sure we're going to see the same faces. You never see the same faces year in and year out. So, no, no, no. Uh, so unfortunately, a big name or two probably will not be back next year. Uh, for the sake of many Astros, both here in the States and in, in the U.K., let's hope it's... Uh, Let's hope George's uh, Astros career goes beyond 2020. Here, here. I share the worries about the offense in general going forward with the names like Yuli Gurriel and Michael Brantley also coming up for free agency. Uh, I was entering this year almost looking at it, sounds rather pessimistic, but as a last shot for a while for the Astros to win another championship, which is why, like I said, the season being curtailed is so disappointing. I really hope that they do get, again, we're not talking about end of the world situation, but I do hope they get a, a last hurrah as a team. And we, I guess only time will tell us if that's the case. 
What I would say is a more positive move from the Astros are the appointments of Dusty Baker and also James Click. I think really savvy moves, particularly on the, on the part of bringing Click in from the race. It's exactly the type of mindset that we needed to replace the void left by Luno's departure. And I think um, as someone who's obviously spent a lot of time with the Rays organization yourself, is that something which is shared amongst the media as well in terms of particularly James Click? I mean, Dusty Baker is the perfect firefighter for the scenario. The Astros are in with masses of experience and obviously a, a hunger to win the championship himself. But I think James Click long term, that's a fantastic move. No, you're, you're right. And he's going to have a challenge because, like you said, there's a lot of changes that are going to happen after the 2020 season moving forward. Um, so he's going to have a challenge. It's the golden era of Astros baseball cannot last forever. So at some point, mm-hmm. uh, you have to start to look towards the future and try and, you know, you know the guys that are going to be here long term. Altuve is going to be here forever. Bregman's going to be here forever. Yeah. Uh, we'll still have another year of Verlander and Greinke, but uh, beyond that, we'll see what happens. So you, you need to start looking. Everything that happens from here on forward it has to have an eye towards uh, 2021 and beyond. And uh, with that in mind, James is a great individual to have in place as the general manager because he has a daunting task, but he's also built teams or helped build teams along with Hein Bloom and Eric Neander and uh, prior to them, Andrew Friedman in Tampa Bay. And they've done so without a little thunder here, by the way, in Houston. As you know. <laughs> um, we, they've done so without the benefit of, of uh, you know, a huge salary structure to work with, which they do. James will have more money here to work with in Houston than he ever had before in Tampa Bay. Uh, but he's also been very creative and both teams are, are very much into the analytics. So I think, you know, he speaks the language of a lot of the front office and the Astros before he even got here. So, yeah, he'll he'll be good. He'll, he'll have a challenge in front of him. You know, losing the draft picks isn't going to help. Uh, some pending free agents, that's not going to help. Uh, and at some point, he's going to have to make some tough decisions that aren't going to thrill Astros fans. But it's the reality of the situation. He can't keep every player forever. Um, and, and I think he is going to be. Uh, very good and shrewd in how he moves forward with his team. And uh, he is probably the right guy at the right time. Absolutely. I think it's a reason for optimism for Astros fans going forward who, like myself, share a few worries beyond 2021 in terms of what the makeup of the team will be. And hopefully we'll see that bear the fruits of his labours as we move on. Just switching subjects a little bit more to just generally for fans who might not know how it works for broadcast teams. I wanted to just get a little bit more information from yourself, if possible, on during the course of a typical Major League season, how much interaction with the team do you have on a day-to-day basis? Uh, pretty much, because we're, especially when we're on the road, you know, you, mm. you know, you always try and stop in the clubhouse. You talk to, we talk to AJ Hinch pretty much on a daily basis. We would talk to him occasionally, you know, outside of his press conferences he did with the general media, just because we kind of find out some things behind the scenes sometimes that yeah. weren't necessarily for use on air, but we could help, it could help us out in our broadcast and in our opinions. Um, we try and stop by the clubhouse, you know, at least once uh, a day and uh, go on the field for BP or whatever, just talk to some guys here and there, just get a feel for what's going on. But uh, we have a decent amount of interaction. It's a little more when you're on the road because you're on the same flights together. You're staying in the same hotels yeah. together. You're taking the same buses back and forth from the stadium. Um, but, yeah, this is a great group. And they've been um, from all different cultures throughout the three years I've been here. And they've been as close to, as any team that I've been around. And it's uh, it's been a pleasure to see a team not only as talented as they are, but 
as close as they are. And, and I don't know of any other team that has as much fun as this Astros group does because they, they love playing the game and they love to show how much they love it. Yeah, I think that really comes across through the broadcast, the character of the team. And like I said, how much fun they have together as a unit. It's really something that as a fan, you can get behind even more. You, you feel like watching these guys day in, day out, even though we don't know them personally, that you kind of do. I don't know if that makes sense, but it really does kind of give you that window into who they are as people. And it's just something which I guess what we like as baseball fans is, is having that kind of insight and being able to try and go on that journey with the team. And I envy you guys to be able to go on that, to literally go on that journey with them. It seems like they're a terrific group and it's equally you guys, as in yourself, Jeff Blum and Julian Morales, make a fantastic unit in your own right. That really comes through on the broadcast that you have a chemistry which comes across and is something which, as viewers, we can engage with and, and adds to the experience of watching the games. In terms of that, what does a normal game day routine look like for you? So what, what kind of time do you get to the ballpark? What, how, how do you prepare? Yeah, most games start around 7 o'clock, uh, whatever local time you're in. So for a seven o'clock game, I try and get there by about three o'clock. When we're on the road, I'll usually get on the first bus, which is generally about four hours before the game. But uh, so I'll try and get there around three, get my lineups down, start to put in the the stats from the lineups. I usually will have done my work on the starting pitchers before I get to the ballpark, just because you already know who's starting that day. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then as the day goes along, you try and talk to some people, whether it's uh, whatever the the current angle is that day. Uh, for a certain player or players and try and talk to them. But you definitely hear from the manager. Uh, Usually I try and get in and hear the opposing manager once a series, preferably the first game of a series, but sometimes it just doesn't work out timing-wise. And on home games, when we get there, um, we're usually in our own. We have a little broadcaster's area that uh, Blummer, myself, Robert, and Sparky all use to prepare so the four of us are down there. Julia can come down there, too. She just chooses to do – she's got other stuff she's doing, and uh, she uses the broadcast booth as her home base. But we're down there, and every once in a while we'll compare notes or throw out different ideas to each other that could help on either side of the broadcast. So that's usually pretty helpful. We're usually down there from uh, the three to five range. And then once you get within a couple of hours of game time, uh, then you start heading upstairs. Usually I'll get up there between 5 and 5.30 meet with a producer, go over all of our story ideas. Here's what we have built in terms of graphics and story ideas for the game. Uh, You try and grab a quick bite to eat at some point, which usually for me, uh, I usually try and auger out about 15 minutes to eat. And then uh, the pregame show starts usually around 6.30, and sometimes we're involved with the pregame show, but sometimes uh, even if we're not on the pregame show, we're usually watching it just uh, because we're in the booth getting ready for the telecast. And then all the fun begins usually around 7 o'clock. So that's basically the rundown. You talk to the opposing broadcasters now and again, usually at the beginning of the series too, just to get a feel for what's going on in their team. Um, and that's about it. There's so many notes that are available. Uh, we have stacks and stacks and stacks of notes. You could you could go from the end of one game to the beginning of another and not read every note. <laughs> you just try and, you try and streamline it and figure out and highlight what's the most important storyline so you'll – you don't have too much um, minutiae into a broadcast. Yeah, I was going to say, I think one thing that I particularly enjoy from the broadcast with yourself and, and Jeff Blum is that you don't overload the information. You let the moments breathe. You don't over-discuss things. I think it's, it really does complement the coverage, like I was saying. One question I'd have on that is I, I do love some of the commentary lines that you've had, like particularly that one Jordan Alvarez, uh, was it now 
giving flights to the Caribbean. Uh, <laughs> that was a fantastic line. Is that something, because I, I know this differs, having spoken to commentators and announcers in different sports, some people do it some certain ways, some people do it other ways. Do you have any prepared lines or do you just sort of have things that you are ready to go with or is it just all sort of off the dome? You know, how do you like to do it? Yeah, um, so with Jordan, so he was such a stud, and he came mm. up, and after having the ridiculous numbers he did at the minor leagues, he did as well, and in some cases even better at the major league level, which is unheard of. Yeah. So we knew we were dealing with a special talent that only comes around once in a while. And I remember at the beginning, he was still only 21 years old. At the beginning, uh, we were kind of searching for a nickname, and I think I started calling him Manchild at the beginning. <laughs> and a couple people on social media had an issue with that. And I asked Jordan himself. He actually didn't mind the nickname. But then I thought about it a little more. I'm like, if people are, think it's disrespectful for some reason, which it wasn't to him, but that's fine. I don't mm -hmm. want to create any controversy. So uh, Blummer started calling him uh, a couple different things. And then I think we just landed on Air Jordan. And then once I started, once we decided we were going to call him Air Jordan, obviously a play on Air Jordan. Oh, so yeah, 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 then, yeah. Then once that happened, I figured, you know, when he hits a, a long home run, that I will just say it's a direct fight <laughs> to wherever. And I, I didn't have anything scripted, but I knew kind of that that's where I was going to go with it. And then I just tried to mix it up a little bit. I think I said Caribbean once. I think I said Europe once. I, think I said Hawaii once. I might have even said Cuba once. I don't even remember. So, but yeah, that was that was kind of the shell for my calls. Uh, same thing I do for right-hand hitters at Minute Maid Park who hit them on the train tracks. I always use the train call. So there's certain mm -hmm. things I have somewhat a, a shell prepared, but everything that happens has to be fairly unique because uh, every home run's different. I can't, I can't say a direct flight to Hawaii on a ball that scrapes the wall, although <laughs> not, not many of Jordan's home runs scrape the wall, so I guess I don't have to worry about that too much. Absolute monster. I, I think, um, yeah, I definitely share that enjoyment of having watched Jordan Alvarez last year, and I really do hope that he's able to continue that development and that pitchers don't manage to kind of work him out because he was incredible to watch last year, absolutely destructive power. The, the nickname I, I came up with was uh, Kingdom of Jordan, but yes, it's... Something which, yeah, long made his power reign in the AL West for the Astros. On the subject of the ballparks, I know that yesterday on the broadcast of Happy Hour, you'd mentioned about Seattle was one of your favourites. I was just wondering what a couple of other ballparks that your favourites and also maybe as well a funny moment that's either in or outside of a game which fans may not know of, which from the last three years, something which happened which you think would be interesting for us to, to hear. Uh, yeah, favourites, Seattle definitely near the top of the list. I love uh Going to Boston and Chicago during the summer times, those are great cities. Um, in terms of overall ballparks, uh, other than Safeco Field in the American League, um, you know, Camden Yards has still stood the test of time to me. I, I don't know if I'd put it in my top two or three, but it's for an older stadium, it's outstanding. Um, when it's nice in the summertime, Target Field's a really nice stadium. I think Kansas City's another stadium that stood the test of time. Can't wait to see what the new ballpark looks like in Texas. That's uh, yeah. That's going to be pretty cool to check that out. Um, Anaheim always has a great feel to it. It's always pleasant there, and uh, everything's kind of Disney-esque there. So, yeah, there's a lot of cool stadiums. Some of my favorites, and unfortunately, if we don't travel this year and we play games in the NL West, some of my favorite stadiums uh, are in the National League West. I love Coors Field in Denver. I love that whole yeah. setting. Uh, you've got the stadium downtown and a great city that's thriving right around there. San Diego, the same thing with Petco Park. Uh, and they're downtown in the gas, like, uh, gas lamp district. Um, 
those are just some of the my favorite. Oh, Arizona. I've always enjoyed going to Arizona. So yeah, those I'll miss that if we play the the NL West and I don't get to travel to those uh, stadiums. San Francisco is one of the best also. So um so yeah, those are those are some off the top of my head that I that are my favorites, but my favorite cities are uh in the AL for sure, not necessarily in, in any order, but Chicago, Boston, uh and Seattle, and it's always cool to go to New York. In terms of a funny story, I don't know if anything jumps out in my mind. I mean, we just, we travel uh, together. We work together. We basically see each other as much as we see the people that we live with on a regular basis, although not this year with the pandemic. We're seeing our spouses a lot more than our coworkers. But, um, yeah, we're just, it's it's a cool group. And, and um, we, we all, what you see, you can't really fake, like what you talked about earlier with, get you feel like you know the Astros players you can't really fake your personality over 162 games on a broadcast so you are who you are and um if you don't get along with somebody or you don't get along as a trio uh, then that's going to show up somehow and it's going to seem a little bit staged or uh, a little bit disingenuous so the fact that Blummer and Julia and I get along so well and have such great respect for each other I think goes a long way to um, having the kind of broadcast we have. I remember uh, when I was the sideline person in Tampa Bay prior to coming to Houston, mm. um, I always was uh, envious, I guess, of how much Julia got to interact on the broadcast. And I thought that was great. She had such a, a big role and it felt natural. And we just carried that forward and and um, and made sure that, she, you know, nothing really changed that she could she could jump in and she, she usually doesn't jump in unless she has something that really adds to the broadcast. So, so when we get her on there, the air, and we could just talk as a trio and hang out and be ourselves. Uh, it's not really a great story, but I guess what you see on the air is pretty much what you would see if you hung out with us at a restaurant off the air. Okay. Now definitely. I think, yeah, I co-signed that. There's never any occasions when you're speaking over each other. Everyone knows, you know, how they gel best with each other. And I was delighted when I read that you guys had extended your contracts beyond the next year. Again, from a fan point of view, long may that continue. I, I really hope that you guys keep having a blast like you do and keep delivering that fantastic coverage. Okay, here's a slightly more lighthearted point. Which ballpark has the best media food? Oh, best media food. Yeah, because we talked about the worst the other day. Um, <laughs> Yankee Stadium's right up there for sure. I think Robert brought that up on the Anheuser-Busch Happy Hour we did. Yankee Stadium's got the biggest selection, no doubt about it. It's also the most expensive of the media dinings, but huh. you pay for what you get. So there's, there's, there's is exceptional. Um, it's funny because certain cities go up and down. Um, Kansas City's pretty good. Cleveland has been good, and then it kind of went down for a while. Now it's back up again. Uh, Seattle's, <laughs> is, Seattle's is solid. Um, as I said on the on the uh, happy hour show, the mm. only place where I, where I won't eat the media dining is Oakland. I just think that they've, they, it just hasn't appealed to me over the years. I, Toronto has a good media dining. Um, so anyhow, those, those come to mind, but I, just, even in Oakland, when there's not a media dining to choose from, they bring out a bunch of food trucks right outside of, uh, the Coliseum. So we get to eat out of the food truck. So it's not too bad at all, but they, it's nice to have the ability to go into a stadium, get your work done and realize you only have X amount of time to finish a meal before mm. the game starts and have a, a hot meal available for you for usually around, I don't know, it averages 10 or 12 bucks per place, but it's not too shabby. Ha, that's the kind of added detail that fleshes out character of the broadcast for us as fans. I love hearing that. Um, oh, Minnesota's, Minnesota's one of the best. I forgot about Minnesota. 
Minnesota's well, one of the best. Boston used to be one of the best, but they've actually gone in the wrong direction lately, too. What sort of thing they have on offer in Minnesota? In Minnesota? Minnesota's just got always fresh stuff. It just feels like everything's like farm to table. Um, Boston used to have a great variety of things, and now it feels like they've kind of slowed down on some of the variety they used to have. But Minnesota not only has some of the best options, but they have the sweetest people that work in media dining. So uh, it's a good combination. Uh, Target Field... And Minneapolis is another sleeper town. If you go to Minneapolis and it's not April or May mm. or maybe September, uh, if you go in the summer months, it's it's a great city. You can walk to the ballpark. So there's a lot of cool things to do outside. So it's it's one of the better setups as well. Do you have, let's just say, three favorite regular season games as an Astros commentator that immediately spring to mind from the kind of upper echelon of games you've, you've commentated on for us as an experience, just the whole thing? I'm presuming that maybe Minnesota, the miracle in Minnesota might be up there. Just wondered if um, if you had any ball games which immediately spring to mind is, oh, that's one I always cherish and remember for as long as. Yeah, the, the one in Minnesota will stand out, all, you know, Memorial Day massacre where they came back from a huge mm. deficit that was one that was just you, you you couldn't believe what you were watching so that one will always have a special place uh the very first series i ever called was the mariners of the astros and uh springer in the third game hit a walk off in extra innings that was pretty mm-hmm. cool that was kind of like my indoctrination to how cool the next three years were going to be for me in the astros booth yeah um the 23-run game last year in Baltimore was unbelievable. Um, I think the Verlander no-hitter will go down as one that I'll remember forever. Um, I even remember, you know, the, the back-to-back-to-back with uh, with Altuve and Bregman and then Jordan uh, just pummeling one in the upper tank as the third straight home run. That, I, and I just screamed like I was a fan from I didn't even broadcast. Uh, so that, that, was, uh, that was pretty cool. And I also... I like the moments, not necessarily, you know, this, uh, all this, the highlights the Astros have given me for three years is phenomenal, but the stuff off uh, the cuff or off, you know, the beaten path a little bit, like when we had um, Neil Armstrong's son, Rick, up in the booth for Apollo mm. 11 night, and then next thing you know, while he's in the booth, the Astros score their 11th run of the game on the 11th batter of the inning on the 11th hit, like it's all this weird Apollo 11 stuff, and I, mm. like you can't even script that, no one would believe it. Um, so little, some of our Astros after dark shows are my favorite broadcast just because we can kind of let it loose a little bit and, and kind of have a little more fun than we normally would when it gets really late at night, which for you would be really early in the morning, I guess. Um, so yeah, all, very much, yeah. all the above, I love the, the moments on the field that are phenomenal and they've given me more highlights than I could ever imagine in three years. But I also love, uh, the fun moments that we have, uh, during the broadcast as well. Mm. I would definitely echo that it comes across on the broadcast every single time. Moving on, actually, just to your career, fans in the UK and in other locations around the world might not necessarily be aware that your father was the, the legendary Harry Callis, who is in the Philadelphia Phillies Hall of Fame as an announcer. Was there a moment when you were growing up when you knew that you wanted to become a commentator? And if so, what was it? So everybody, growing up, I was kind of the kid that kept scores of the game from a young age. I was probably like, nine or ten years old started to keep score of the games and then as i got into my early teens i think uh maybe even 12 years old i went up to the broadcast booth and helped out on sundays because they would have an extra seat on the radio side because they did both tv and radio on sunday so i'd sit in that seat and i would keep the out-of-town scoreboard for them this is well before 
all the scores were sitting there on your computer for you to, to watch get updated live. So we would get a little ticker tape and you would write down the scores of all the out-of-town games with who hit the home runs, who was pitching, et cetera. So I kept track of all that. And then people would see me keeping score of games and just assume that, you know, that was something I was going to eventually do with broadcast baseball games. And even though it was always in the back of my mind, I wasn't 100% sure. And even coming out of high school, always scored better doing uh, on the math side of things, whether it was the ACTs or SATs. I was a, I was a, a better scorer on the math side than the verbal side. So I was always uncertain whether or not I wanted to do the broadcasting gig. So I went to University of Maryland, kind of switched majors a few times. And after my freshman year, I'm like, you know what? I'll never have this get rid of this insatiable appetite to be a broadcaster if I don't at least give it a shot and see whether or not I could have done it. So that's when I transferred to Syracuse, went there with a dual degree. And I'm like, hey, I'm going to be going against the best kids in all the country because Syracuse has such a good reputation uh, as a broadcast school. And I'll kind of figure out while I'm there what my pecking order is amongst the very talented kids that are there. And if I feel like I'm good enough, I'll pursue that career. And if not, I'll go with my marketing uh, degree. And I was lucky enough. I don't think I was no, by no stretch one of the best at the time in that uh, group at Syracuse. I roomed with Mike Tirico, uh, the other guys named Charlie Palillo and Bill Roth and uh, Dave hmm. Ryan and oh. others who were there while I was there have gone on to to, to be great broadcasters. And uh, Dave O'Brien was there when I was there. So there was a lot of talent there. But uh, anyhow, so I knew I wasn't the best, but I felt like I was good enough that I could make a career of it. So by the time I got out of there, I was lucky enough to uh, move a lot in the beginning of my career, but to figure out that uh, if you can survive those first three to five years out of college, making pretty low wages and, and bouncing around to a couple of different cities, that if you can survive that, you were usually in pretty good shape. And I was lucky enough to make a career out of it. Yeah, looking at your career, am I right saying you started off with the Mets in terms of the majors as a radio broadcaster before then joining the Phillies where you were working with your father at that point? Is that correct? More or less, we were on the same broadcast team, but he did games over the air. I did games on uh, cable, which was then called Prism. So we never actually worked mm. on the same broadcast, but we were we were announcing for the Phillies at the same time, just on different networks. That must have been an incredible experience. I mean, to have that support there, I guess it must have been fairly mind-blowing, right? Am I accurate with that? For me, the, the thought of having that wealth of experience to hand, so to speak, from within my family would be an unbelievable position. Is that right? No, it was super cool. It was, it was, um, and I, I'm glad I didn't start my career with the Phillies because I always felt like, you know, just being a broadcaster in Philadelphia, I'd always be known as Harry Jr. and yeah, never really yeah. have a chance to establish myself. So the fact that I'd been working for the Mets for a couple of years prior to that, to me, helped solidify my decision to go back to Philly. And even when I was only in Philadelphia for three years, it was a lot of fun. I felt like I grew a lot there and uh, helped me to get my next gig with the Tampa Bay Rays. Uh, then they were known as the Devil Rays. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. that's actually where I was was started my broadcast career coming out of college, my first full-time job, other than working one year as uh, the number two announcer for the University of Delaware football and basketball. I then got a job down in Clearwater, Florida in, nine, in like 89, and then stayed there before I jumped into baseball. So I always loved that area. I used cool. to go down there in spring training when my dad would call games for the Phillies in Clearwater. So I always wanted there... I always wanted to be there if and when baseball came to that region. And sure enough, uh, they did in 98. And I was lucky enough to be on that inaugural crew. And then I kind of uh, ended up not leaving for a long time. It took 19 years and a 
an opportunity with the Astros to do play-by-play that was uh, one that I could never turn down. So uh, I still have a home there in Tampa. Get back there every once in a while. My wife and I met there and still have great friends there. Uh, so I still have a lot of affinity for that area. But, uh, yeah, that's how the whole – that's how the whole thing went down. But yes, going back to your original point, being in Philadelphia, working alongside of my dad for three seasons, even though we weren't on the air together, was was a blessing. And uh, it was a lot of fun to be around. And it's the, the Phillies organization will always uh, be the one that's most special to my heart, just how they always treated dad and how they treated me through the years. That's really cool to hear. From your experiences, how would you evaluate the different cultures? I guess broadcasting cultures of between the Mets when you were there. I guess it's going back a while, but the Mets when you were there, the Phillies, the Rays and the Astros. Are there very, very different philosophies of how the broadcast is set out or is it all pretty much a similar kind of setup? I'm speaking from someone who's obviously not in that arena and in that realm, if you like, but someone who observes it with a great deal of fascination because I have nothing but admiration for the jobs you guys do particularly for baseball commentators who are working, as you said, day in, day out for pretty much six months with barely any respite. And you have to maintain that same level of professionalism to a fault every single day. And you do it admirably. Are there any differences between the the way these ball clubs approach it? Yeah, I think each team has its unique uh, little style or distinction between the two. But there's certain certain broadcasting... uh, styles I or certain broadcasting things that are that are common for everybody. There are certain things that you just cover the basics. Mm. But yeah, every everything's everybody's different. I think, you know, the first two years I was in New York, I was probably a little young to be in New York, to be perfectly honest. Looking back on it, I was twenty six years old and twenty seven, still kind of cutting my teeth and uh figuring some things out. And I was coming on after Mike and the Mad Dog, which is the iconic uh radio talk show host here in the States and then leading into Bob Murphy, who is a Hall of Famer, and, and Gary Cohen, who will probably be in the Hall of Fame someday. I was kind of like the young kid in the middle of all these iconic broadcasters, and it was kind of intimidating at the time. So, uh, But the Mets had brought me on because Howie Rose had been doing the pre- and post-game show, and they wanted to have the person who was a team employee in that role because Howie was you know, honest but also critical of the team at the time, and they just kind of wanted to soften some of those blows. So... That was kind of a different role for me, but I felt very comfortable in the role. It's just a matter of me getting comfortable in my own skin in that big market as a as a young broadcaster. And then on to Philadelphia, you know, the three years I was there, I uh, got to call the games first few first three innings and last three innings on the Prism broadcast. So that was my first chance to be a quote unquote a number one lead play by play guy. So that was a lot of fun. Uh, and then to go from that to being more of the pre and post game show host with Tampa Bay. Uh, initially when I got down to Tampa Bay, I thought I only wanted to be there a few years because my ultimate goal was to be back and doing uh, play-by-play at somewhere. And then, uh, like I said, I ended up staying 19 years. But I think in Tampa Bay, one of the things that stood out was because they were so bad for the first 10 years I was there that we ended up having a lot of fun on the broadcast. We would do a lot of things that wouldn't necessarily keep the focus on what was going on in the field because the teams were terrible generally. They didn't (laughs) They didn't win more than 70 games for the first 10 years until the remarkable 2008 season. So that taught me that, you know, there's so much fun that you can have at the ballpark and there's so many ways you can do a broadcast without having to focus on uh, every pitch, every bat and and breaking down and analyzing or overanalyzing every situation. Then Joe Madden came to Tampa Bay and he extended the fun even more. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then I've kind of brought that style. I've always been one even you know, before I got to Tampa Bay, I've always been one that would rather 
you know, sound like you're having a smile on your face and hanging out, talking about the game than, than somebody who is more into just being a, a broadcaster and sounding like uh, you're just reading off notes and, and being a professional broadcaster. So I always had that fun element in my style before, but I think I certainly uh, enhanced that when I was in Tampa Bay, and that's kind of the style uh, that I brought to Houston. So I got a, a little bit of everything from every stop I was along the way, and uh, it's kind of helped nur- uh, nurture me and develop me into the broadcaster that I am now. Mm. It's been a fantastic career for you so far. And like I was saying, I hope that we are blessed to get several more years, at the very least, with yourself as an Astros announcer. Because like you said, that fun element really does come across. And it does absolutely add to the experience of watching the game. And we thank you for it. Moving on to the final points. This show is called Strows Across the Globe. And it kind of is what it says in the tin. I'm based in the UK. And... We have a small but very dedicated fan base over here uh, on Twitter alone in the past three years. I have managed to come across around about 140 Astros fans here, plus numerous others around the world. When I did the promo tweet for this podcast announcing that I was starting it, I was looking through some of the interactions that I've had with fans across the globe. And we've got fans in New Zealand, Australia, Turkey, South Africa, Singapore, uh, in China, Pretty much you name it, is it everywhere? And I wondered, are you guys over there aware of the global Astros fan base that much? And if not, what can we do to help get more of a visible presence? Because we love supporting this club. I can't tell you how much we love supporting it. Well, that's great to hear how much you've developed things in the UK. I'm not to my next word on home run with direct flights now to the UK. <laughs> please, um, please do. We'll have to look for that. And yeah, uh, every once in a while, Blummer and I on a Twitter Tuesday will... Uh, just go off the rails a little bit. And I think one or two games, we just asked for people to send in on, on Twitter where they were watching the game from or listening to mm. the game. And we got all kinds of countries sent into us. So it was, that was a pretty cool little social experiment we did. Um, so I guess we are aware to an extent that we have gl- a global following of Astros fans. I wasn't aware until we talked uh, a little bit more at length about the numbers in the UK. 140 is an impressive number. And, and there's never... Uh, been a tougher time to be an Astros fan. I mean, you're a true loyal Astros fan when you stick through this situation about what's happened here over the last few years uh, with a cheating scandal with AJ and Jeff losing their jobs and Mm. uh, with basically becoming the villain of Major League Baseball. So for you guys to stick through this shows your loyalty and shows that you're going to be around uh, forever. So that's that's a great thing. And I, I do appreciate and one of the reasons why I wanted to do this podcast in addition to you being being very pleasant and you're asking as i want to try and, <laughs> thank you i want to try and make this uh this team you know more global there's certain franchises that are iconic throughout the the world and and the astros have been as talented as any team in baseball winning 311 games the last three years so it's cool to have that brand grow internationally that's the way the sport's going and and i really appreciate everything that you've done to keep it uh, growing in the UK, and hopefully those numbers will keep going up of Astros followers, um, and, and you're a big part of it. So thanks for that, George. I really appreciate that coming from yourself. It is a mission of mine to connect Astros fans all over the globe. I don't. I said it. I said it at the start of this show before we begun. I don't view myself as anything other than a fan, but I like to act as a beacon to try and gather all these Astros fans together from all across the world and connect them with the fans over in Houston. And it's been an extraordinarily rewarding process for me personally. Made a lot of friends in Houston and around the world as a result of it. It's a particularly dedicated French Astros account as well, who I'm trying to get involved with with things more. 
And yeah, I mean, we're just going to keep pushing, keep developing. I mean, with this show, I'm looking to get those fans on as well as having special guests like yourself and really make it all about the community. I can't stress that enough. It's something which I believe very strongly can expand and grow organically. All it takes is bringing a few people on board in each country and then what starts off as a ripple becomes a wave, etc. And I feel like it's possible. And uh, yes, it is an extraordinarily tough time to have been an Astros fan. The response online following the scandal was vitriolic to a level which I have not previously seen before. But I just tell everyone, you know, you have to stay strong. What happened, happened. It wasn't right. It doesn't necessarily mean you're condoning it by in any way at all by sticking by the team. They are human beings at the end of the day. And we love this team. And that's not going to change regardless of what happened. We move on and we look towards a future that's very positive. The Astros fan base in the UK is very diverse in that people obviously approach games in different ways due to the, the time that it's on here. I'm not sure if you guys are aware necessarily over there, but you kind of have a choice over here. Either you're going to watch it live and stay up through the night and kind of punish yourself, or you can watch the or you can watch the condensed games, which are fantastic on the MLB app, 15, 20 minute long versions of the games, and you're not really missing out. And I always tell people that it doesn't make you any less of a fan over here if you can't stay up through the night, because at the end of the day, we all have jobs, we all, we all have families. It's not easy to do that. I put myself through the ringer, but it, again, it doesn't make me any more special than any of the others is just because I, I'm extremely passionate about making sure that this fan base stays together and expands globally as well as back home for you guys in Houston on that point I'm hoping I was hoping to get out this year because I've never actually been to Houston but I'm hoping that in 2021 I can finally get out there for the first time and see the Astros because I have been to a couple of ball games but not in Houston unfortunately and as a fan of 20 years it does eat away at me that I haven't done that yet, so um, it's very. Did much you catch a my... home run in a game in Chicago last year? No, uh, no, 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 no. That wasn't me. That was that was the chap called James. Correctly, oh, yeah, okay, he, okay. Yeah, I was. I was another he, fan from the UK. Yeah, because I gave him the flag design, which he <laughs> had his flag out there. Yeah, because I, I got one made for myself, and then someone was asking about it, and I've had a couple of fans ask about it. But yeah, he was. It, that was incredible. That home run landed. He didn't even have to move. It was sort of destined to be. And as soon as he started putting the photos out, I was just yeah retweeting it like crazy, trying to get you guys' attention. And it was awesome to see him on the um, on the broadcast. But when you know, if and hopefully when I get out there, I will definitely be trying to do the same to make as many connections as possible and just advance as this whole thing that we're doing. I mean, it's, it really is, as far as I'm concerned, it's a movement. There's this the wider UK movement with MLB UK community, which I'm part of. But in terms of closer to home, so to speak, the, the Astros movement is something I am driven about. And it's, a, it's an ongoing mission for me. And I can't wait to see where it goes. And, I, and I'm so glad to get the opportunity to speak with yourself. I mean, naturally following this, I'm hoping that I might be able to get your partner in crime, Jeff Blum, onto the show as well and see if, if I can continue the momentum with him, which uh, I would love to do. Yeah, well, I can hear your passion loud and clear and uh, keep it going. Uh, hopefully we'll have a season sooner than later, and uh, we look forward to whenever that next time is when you'll have an opportunity to, to swing by Houston for sure. Big time. Okay, last points. Prediction for Astros 2020 if the season does start. I think they win the division. I really do. I think Oakland's going to be good again. Oakland's been one of the best teams in all of baseball the last two years with 97 wins each. But I think the Astros have enough to get it done. Uh, it's a lot more difficult in a shortened season for the cream to rise to the, to the top. So hopefully they get off to a good start. Hmm. And then uh, once they get to the postseason, if Verlander's healthy to go along with Greinke and McCullers, and we saw what Urquidy did in the postseason last year, you know, I'll take my chances. I think this offense is good enough to get them back into another World Series again. So um, I think my 
opinion of the 2020 team is pretty close to what I had uh, going into 2019. Even though there's no Garrett Cole, it's still a very talented team, and I think they can they can easily get back to the third World Series in the last four years. And can they win it? Oh yeah, yeah. Once you get there, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Cool. Very final point. It would be remiss of me not to mention this, as I am also part of the Houston-based group Apollo Media. They are running an Astros sim season, which they've been doing every day as per the schedule. I think, if I'm not mistaken, the Astros are, I think, something like 27 and 16 in their sim season. They wonder if at some stage, potentially, they could get yourself and Jeff Blum to call one of the simulated games. Is that something that could potentially be possible if your schedule allows it? Uh, yeah, it's something I'll have to talk to Blummer about. Maybe we can do an inning or so. I'm not sure mm. how long do the games normally take. Uh, yeah, they do zip through them as fast as they can. But yeah, I think it's normally in the region of around an hour, hour and a half. I, I think that they may have opened the discussion with Blummer already. But yeah, that's just, just to put that one out there. If it's possible, the guys would absolutely love it. Yeah, I, I saw they were doing something like a 24-hour Twitch marathon beginning, mm. tonight, something like that. So I may yep. try and jump in on a Zoom if I have time to. Uh, but yeah, I did see something about that. Awesome. Wrapping up, if you can just let people know what your social media details are, if they want to get at you on Twitter and anywhere else, where, yeah. where can they find you? At Real Todd Callis. I'm mostly on Twitter. I also have an Instagram account, but I'm not on there really as much. Uh, mm-hmm. So for, for me, the I use Twitter as my main uh, social media platform. So at Real Todd Callis. And uh, I don't have a chance. I don't really use my Twitter during the games as much as, as Blummer does. He's very good at staying interactive. I try to be interactive where I can, but most of my stuff happens before or after a game. But I will uh, I will usually check out any messages that are sent my way on at Real Todd Callis. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I am enormously appreciative of that. It's been a real privilege to get an insight into your routine and your thoughts on the Astros as it stands. And yeah, looking forward to keeping in touch during the season. That hopefully will happen. Uh, yeah, let's have We better have one. All right, George, great to talk to you. Awesome. Appreciate that. Thanks very much. You got it. Well, let me tell you, that was a lot of fun. Some great insight from Todd Callis, ranging from his thoughts on the presently mooted MLB plans for a shortened season this year, the 2019 and 2020 Astros, plus a fascinating look at his typical commentary routine for ball games, and also diving into his long and successful media career. I'm a great fan of his work alongside Jeff Blum and Julian Morales for the Astros, who are quite arguably the strongest and most enjoyable announcing team anywhere in the majors. Wrapping things up, I know it's not necessarily the done thing on a new podcast, but I have to give a few social media shout-outs to other baseball ones you will likely enjoy. You may or may not know that I'm also a co-creator of the British baseball fan group MLB UK Community, so make sure you follow us there on Twitter, at MLB UK Community, and also our podcast, PTBNL Podcast, to be named later, at PTBNL UK. Staying with the British scene, I also ask that you please check out the Tireless Batflips and Nerds podcast on Twitter at Batflips underscore nerds. As far as the Astros are concerned, please get following my guys Apollo Media. That's at Apollo H-O-U on Twitter. All Houston, all original, representing the city in the very best light and with some awesome merch in their store. So please do get involved. I will have an Apollo Media giveaway for the next episode. Other Astros accounts on Twitter I would implore everyone listening to follow are the incomparable Astros County, who's been extremely supportive of my efforts for the Astros over the years. That's at Astros County. And Let's Get Two, which is at Let's Get Two podcast on Twitter, which is a really fun grassroots look at baseball. 
As for me, if you're not already doing so, then definitely make sure to follow me on Twitter at AstrosFansUK and on Instagram as, hopefully not too confusingly, UK Astros Fans. I have a UK Astros Fans store with balcony shirts, but you'll have to wait for that one to reopen due to the pandemic, unfortunately. Plus, I'm working on getting an Astros Fans UK website up and running too, so definitely keep your eyes peeled for that one. Before I go, I would like to pass on my sincerest condolences to the family of Bob Watson, the former Astros great who sadly passed away at the age of 74. Known as Bull, Bob Watson played for the club between 1966 and 1979 before also later becoming the general manager. All that remains for me is to say a huge thank you for listening to Strodes Across the Globe episode 1 and I look forward to having you on board again for the next episode. Wherever you are across the globe, let's go Strodes.